back in the uh, long, long ago, far, far away, when I was the uh, youth and young adult pastor at the Vineyard in Anaheim, California. And by default, sort of, uh, a strange thing happened. I, I, don't, I don't know whose fault it was. But I, I became sort of the pastoral um, presence for this whole group of musicians that God kind of brought in. And it, it was first, it was kind of fun, and then it sort of became a full-time job. I mean, a lot of musicians, it's a lot of work, you know. Uh, they were always getting in trouble. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. It was actually a, 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 an amazing and fun time. I had the opportunity to go out with these different bands, and they would play at colleges and campuses and city events and sometimes nightclubs, and we would just see the presence of God move. And it, was, it really was amazing when people would gather and listen to the music, and then all of a sudden they'd start speaking out words and praying for people. It was a blessing. And one of the first uh, folks I met during that time was Raymond McDonald, this uh, blues player from Houston, Texas. Uh, and I wasn't sure exactly what to think about that. But over the years, uh, you know what, Teresa, would you just stand up for a second? Raymond's beautiful wife, Teresa. Raymond and Teresa and Donna and I have, have uh, remained friends and stayed connected over the years. We talked with them and, and uh, prayed with them before they left to go back to Houston to plant a church there. And uh, it's just been really, really a blessing to see what God's done in and through them. Raymond has been, uh, like I said, a faithful friend and, and, a, and a pastor and a mentor to a lot of young people, and, and uh, especially young musicians and others who want to serve the Lord in that capacity. But uh, I'm just blessed. He spent the weekend with the guys out at uh, Sarah and Bubba's farm this weekend just really talking to us about community and our need for connection with God and one another, and it was such a blessing. So we're going to want you to come up and share a little bit with us this morning. Oh, he wears a jacket, and it's a vineyard, man. You don't... I, don't, I like to hide the wire. Hide the wire. To hide the wire. I don't like people putting things down the back of my shirt. It makes me I'm feel gonna, funny. I'm going to pray for you. Oh, I'd like it. Lord, just uh, thank you for Raymond. Bless him. Bless his word this morning. Just uh, anoint him to, to share what's on his heart with us today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's a pleasure to meet you guys. Yes, I agree with that. That's a great introduction. Thank you very much. I, I don't really like children, but uh, I have 11 of them and six grandkids, so uh, I, I do like them. Yes, I have 11 children. I'm one short of a tribe, uh, but, uh, and I'm not looking to get there, so don't be offering up any children. We had, uh, Therese and I adopted eight children. Uh, that was after we planted the church in Conroe. We thought we needed something else to do, so... We uh, went ahead and adopted eight more children. We are done uh, with 11. We have our three that we have and then our grandchildren as well who stay with us a lot. So it's, it's always children with us. I do love children, and that's all. I'm, I'm used to hearing those sounds and being uh, just, just levitated up with such joy uh, with all the children in the home. When I used to travel a lot uh, as Sleepy Ray, which was the name given to me because I can fall asleep anywhere and often did while driving, but... Um, uh, I always spoke a lot about joy, but after 11 kids, I don't really give that speech anymore. It's more it's about patience and, and you know, those kind of things right there. But uh, uh, it's a joy to be here, and I, I am so honored. I've, uh, I've been here before. Uh, last time we came, I was asked to clean the church, and we need a little money, and we cleaned up, and y'all sent us on our way, and I appreciated that. So we've moved from the janitorial services more into the pastoral services, which has been my experience. They're about the same thing. So I want to go ahead and uh, do that. Uh, Teresa and I, uh, 
as you've heard, are from Conroe. That's 40 miles north of Houston if you're looking for us and want to stay with us and don't mind children. Come see us there in Conroe there. We live across the street from the church, uh, which we bought from the Presbyterians after they said, we've had it with this neighborhood. Uh, we said, oh, we like your church. And uh, uh, they said, well, good. And I said, I got one problem. We don't have any money. And we don't have a lot of people. And they assured us that we would not get that church. I said, well, can we pray about that? After they prayed and we prayed, they came back and said, okay, we'll, we'll sell a church to you. Uh, and uh, they, they put us on a payment plan. It's kind of like a, uh, it was the Kmart Blue Light special kind of plan. It's been fantastic. Living across the street from the church where you can hear the sheep bleating all the time, the knocks on the doors. We are in a transitional community it used to be one of the wealthiest in the world at the time. A lot of oil there in Conroe now uh, is in that place where you see a lot of people uh, who have a lot of money, who don't have a lot of money. Lots of different people, different cultures there. There, We love it, uh, and we've been very blessed to be there. We uh, Come January, it be 17 years that we planted that church. And yes, we did come see uh, Glenn and Donna here because we were certainly wondering. Maybe we were going to come to Portland. We didn't know what to do as we were leaving Park City, Utah. Uh, what we would do in our lives at that time. And so we did land back in Conroe that was there. 17 years ago, we uh, did that. Before uh, we did plant that church, I was uh, uh, a youth pastor also uh, at Spring Vineyard. I did that for two and a half years in honor of my mentor, Glenn Schroeder. I wanted to be a youth pastor. I really didn't do well. Again, I don't like kids, but uh, it was... uh, you know, I, I didn't like ball caps on backwards, and I didn't play basketball, so it was kind of a hard gig for me. But I did enjoy it very much and still have a lot of the youth who follow me uh, uh, with me at my church. Before that, I was a worship pastor in Park City, Utah, up in the mountains there. And that's a hard gig when you're not a Mormon living in uh, Utah. But, uh, and I loved coffee so much, it was a hard uh, time there. But we did that for a year. Uh, but before we did that, as you may have already heard, we were at Anaheim. And uh, that was our church, and we loved it there. Uh, for me, I, I arrived at Anaheim, uh, a bit of a, uh, arrived on its celestial shores there in 1991, a bit of a runaway slave, a bond servant of Jesus Christ who had left the fold because I went in pursuit of my dream, that of glory of a musician, and I certainly was going to find that. I was going to be bigger than Elvis. I am still eating and trying to get there, haven't quite reached there. It was my desire to be famous. And uh, but I had been called as a pastor to make Jesus famous. And I always had this issue was there. I was raised in a Baptist church, which I loved the Baptist faith that was there. Very fundamentalist. We were not really allowed to play anything but Amazing Grace. And there's only so many ways you can play Amazing Grace to make it cool. I remember one time hitting a note. It was like a blues note. And, it was meow, and, the, and the janitor, who was also the worship leader, the way it worked back then, Tucker. And so the um, he looked at me and said, boy. You hit another one of those blue notes, we all going to go to hell. (laughs) Because that was the whole point. There was a certain type of music. It was secular. It was sacred. It was separated up. And and I loved blues. I loved a type of music that was not going to be really accepted by God. And so I was raised in this place of desiring music, desiring to be loved by God, but having this passion inside. So if you've ever been in that place, you understand it's always difficult. How how do I love God when, when I come to him and everything inside of me dies? In the sense that I don't feel created and stuff. I didn't. I, I went through that uh, conundrum that was there. It was very difficult for me. So I decided to go off to Texas A and M University, where I'd be howdy, uh, you know, gig them. Uh, if you know Aggies in Texas, we're the butt of all the jokes. Which my favorite joke is, what do you call an Aggie graduate? Boss. And that's my job. That's my job is to give you that joke. You don't know Aggies. 
But uh, I, when I left A&M and came to L.A. because I was so afraid when I graduated as, as an engineer that once I got the money, God, I was done with God. I was still on the run, but I knew I still had a call. And so when I arrived in California there in ni- uh, 1984, uh, U2 was the big bands. Uh, Boy George was the big bands. Uh, oh, it was fantastic. I never knew whose re- dressing room I was in. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but we were Texas gut bucket boogie woogie blues and the bands and the bars loved us because when we played everyone bought beer because everyone danced instead of sitting back looking at us uh, but i was at that time i met uh chris lazat who became a very good friend he told me about the vineyard uh we became friends but he also was in his pursuit of glory and we kind of lost contact uh and um years later he would come back and say hey i've, I've arrived at the vineyard uh we feel uh, he and a guy named kevin Pross showed up at my house and said we want to invite you to come play with us in the band to come be a part of us uh, here. Uh, that was difficult for me, and I, as I shared with the guys earlier, I was very concerned because the only Christian bands I knew was Striper, and I knew I wouldn't look good in spandex, so I was really concerned of coming in back to the vineyard or coming to the vineyard, coming back to God in that sense, what was there. Uh, when I arrived, uh, I would, uh, he would introduce me uh, to a whole new uh, world that was there. And meeting John Wimber at this time and, and his band of musicians and realizing this here that we could write music we could write music that was encompassing what we liked. It wasn't stylistic or anything of that nature that what we were looking for. We were coming here for the main thing, to put nothing before God, uh, nothing before loving Jesus, and that our songs was going to reflect that. Can you understand what it meant like for 12 years to love Jesus and be writing music that I knew he just hated and to live in that dichotomous relationship with God and feel the rejection of what I loved every time I played? And here I was in a place now I could play and enjoy. I had long hair and everyone still loved me. I, had, I wore just a vest with a shaved chest. They kind of loved me. It, it, was, it was a good place to be, to be loved and, and accepted. Uh, there was a quality of this whole idea uh, that was there. And I'm sharing from a musician's point of view because worship is so important to you guys. But I want you to understand, hear it from a musician's heart because it's all of ours. John, he, he often preached on this. It was called intimate worship uh and you know that i was like wow i like that now there's it, it, i like this whole idea of being intimate and today there's a lot of debate what was the intimate worship some of you from the old times you remember it was just the acoustic guitar one person just sitting there playing acoustic and you know kind of james taylor ban morrison old ban morrison kind of thing it was really cool uh, or is it more what we hear today where we have these anthemic rock songs that just come in and they storm the castle and capture you for Jesus? Or maybe a better picture is someone banging on the door saying, get up out of bed. Daddy's home from the war. You know, uh, th- th- that's what the anthems kind of do to me in that way. Uh, the kind of Coldplay, uh, Wilco, uh, I don't know, Panic at the Disco. I don't know what it is you're playing up here, guys. But the point is, uh, I feel the difference, no matter the, whether it's quick or, or, or quiet this sense of intimacy that's called out, that it was not a style, it was something a whole lot more that was there. It wasn't the songs we were writing, it was intimacy. And it meant this, that we were not going to hold anything back. Uh, we were going to give it all to the Father. And, and I can't tell you what it means to feel like you want to give everything to Jesus and feel like you just can't. And to be in a place where you can give it all, all your talents, your hopes, your desires, And you and the worship team to know to give it that when you're singing, you feel him beaming back at you. I love you. Versus the shame of "Hmm, one of those, are you? 
Brian Dirksen, probably one of the most prolific writers or intimate writers back in our time, other than that one song about the geese flying over. I loved uh, the, the, uh, the songs that were very intimate. He wrote this here, though. He said, intimate worship really happens when the songs come as an overflow of the heart, full of love. Real intimacy is like marriage, and it only works as we forsake all others. Intimacy is reverent, not flippantly casual, as some might say. I believe that the more intimate, the more reverent it actually becomes. He was going to say that a husband and wife approach physical love making. Sorry, I know we got some young people here. He wrote it. I didn't. Physical love making on their wedding night with a great reverence. And intimacy in marriage is so powerful because it's so reverent. And without reverence, intimacy in marriage will most certainly die. And without reverence, we will not experience real intimacy in worship. And that word reverence means that I really highly regard and respect that one whom I'm involved in that. When I think about worship... And there's a worship song that has no music that's in the Bible that touches me deeper than any one of them. And that would be in Luke 7, verse 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, I know you know this story, but let's just look at it and feel it. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she's a sinner. Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. He said, two people owed me money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them is going to love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. She did not give me a kiss. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put all on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus turns around and says, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, no music necessary for this majestic worship song. This woman lying down in the most intimate of postures at his feet. Just pouring it all out. Weeping. Demonstrating her great respect of Jesus. Demonstrating this great love, as he would call it. And what was it all based on? Well, he says... It was based on her forgiveness of her sins. But he didn't even say her sins were forgiven until after the whole thing's over. She sensed something here of this, that he accepted her for who she was. She didn't love who she was. But she knew this here, that she could lay there at his feet and pour out this all and wipe his feet with her hair and cry and all this other stuff. And he wasn't going to say, listen here, you prostitute, get up off of my feet. 
Quit dumping that all everywhere and quit crying on me. By the way, did you wash your hair before you did these things? Which is what I would think if I was approaching Jesus' feet. Is he even going to like this? You think he'll dig me? Maybe he won't think I'm pretty. Not her. You see, if love equals intimacy and forgiveness equals acceptance, I will say if love equals intimacy and forgiveness equals acceptance, then we can make this mathematical equation. Again, I was a civil engineering student for four years. We can make this syllogistic statement that says this here. Intimacy equals acceptance. At the very least, intimacy is a function of acceptance. But there's no form of personal rejection that speaks of intimacy. There's no way that you go into an intimate posture thinking that the person who's going to see you in your complete vulnerability, your nakedness, is going to say, ah, you lose a little weight. I had a man come to me and said his wife wouldn't sleep with him, but I talked to her. I literally, I was a young pastor, so I called her in and said, why won't you sleep with a hus- your husband? She said, because when we were, got unrobed, he told me I was fat. I said, I'm sorry I bothered you. I called him back the next day and said, why did you tell your wife she was fat when she was naked? He said, because she is. And I said, guess what you are? And he said, what? I said, celibate. <laughs> no form of personal rejection is going to bring us into this place of intimacy. Go back to John's desire for intimate worship. Worship thus needed intimate worshipers, right? That's what it's about, us worshiping intimately. And who leads us into intimate worship but, but these wonderful musicians, I being one of those, we're musicians. We're leading them into the intimate worship. As musicians, guys, we're, uh, and gals, we're, we're very passionate people. I mean, we leave our towns and go move into flats in Los Angeles back in my day, and we live on basically nothing because the warrior inside of us says, I give up everything to do this. We're very passionate. But we're not known as intimate. Why? Because quite honestly, acceptance is a big issue for most musicians. We're quite honestly mostly a rejected lot. We cut our hair funny and wear different clothes so we can make sure we are rejected because we don't fit in and we know it. And there's reasons why you can look back. I mean, you go back and look at all the musicians you grew up with and understand why they are rejected a lot because we're very relationally challenged. Ask any musician's girlfriend how that's going. I know you're getting married, so I won't cut into that right now. But it stands a reason that it would be because most of us learning our craft and learning our art, and I want you to follow me, really took a lot of hard shots. People weren't very kind. Oh, <laughs> can't carry a tune in a bucket, can you? They don't say very nice things when you're learning to play your instrument. They don't give you that, oh, I'm sure one day, one day you'll sound good. There's about as great as it gets. It gets very brutal. And from our formative years, if you're in any type of formative band, anybody here in band in high school or went to band in high school, uh, what do they do? They make you compete with your friends, don't they? Did you get first chair or did you get the second chair? Oh, I'm really sorry about that. I got the first Great relation building type type of thing. If you go on and you go to college, literally, they will put you in such high stakes competitions that you will hate your life, hate your gift, and hate your friends. By the way, let me show up and lead worship, intimate worship at church after all of this. Because I know something as a musician. I'll tell you what I know. I know rejection. And I know it well. 
But of course, musicians, we can deal with rejection, can't we? We shove out our chest and turn our amp up, say, all right, mm, you're going to hear me. Which really makes, uh, it makes it difficult to have good relationships because now you can't hear and have intimate conversation anymore. Well, even our most intimate songs are about rejection. Most of the intimate songs we've had in the vineyard are about Jesus, you love me. I, I'm so unlovable. I'm so horrible. Thank you for loving me. And those are the songs we love the most. We all love that. We said, you know, love the wretch like me. Every time I sing that song, I cry, a wretch like me. I'm a wretch. I'm a wreck. We're the picture of intimacy. I'd have to say that there. And the point is when uh, we start dressing, like I said, in ways to make sure we're not received, that's good. But here comes the worst part, Donna, is when we do get received. Because when we are that uh, rapacious rapper and rock star kind of guy that everyone's rejected or gal and then we do get received here comes the problem we've built an ego in order to make things happen and i'm watching my time so i'm with you steve but the point is when i get received the ego is a balloon that doesn't go away instead it sticks out more because we understand something i know that i'm a wretch and at one point they're going to figure this out and so i continue to blow the ego up and being received and being loved doesn't seem to take anything away because i've not dealt with this rejected spirit that i have inside of me and so we go on identifying with hey they love me because i write good songs i identify with what i do is how i'm received and who i am i am my instrument i am my voice i am my songs I'm not loved because you just like me because I'm a nice guy. You love me because you liked my album. And by the way, if you didn't like my album, then you hate me. And it doesn't matter if you like me, you hate me. Because everything's based on that kind of transactional, propositional thing that is there for my life. Now, some of you are going, I'm not a musician. Why are you wasting my time? And I'd say, I don't know. But I do know. One of the things I love to say, the stage is our home from which we rarely roam as musicians. My wife would say to me, as she uh, was a big, big part of Vineyard Worship when it conferenced and went around the world, she'd say, what is it with musicians who can't come off the stage and worship? They all got to be on that stage. Yeah, I'd say, I know. Because when I'm not on that stage, guess what I am? Rejected. I didn't get asked to play. We live in fear that something's going to happen. You want musicians, you know what male musicians fear the most? Tell them, Kevin. Well. <laughs> they sink the ship. You don't want them in the band. They ruin the band. They yoko your Beatles, okay? That's what happens. That and the other is losing our hair. I think losing our hair is the biggest fear we have. Oh, if I lose my hair, I'm really out of the band. And quite honestly, you begin to relate. Yeah, I know. We, we talked about that. But the point is, we begin to relate, though, with other people based on, you know, you're my friend because you play good. But if you're not playing good or you don't look good and you don't got the right style and stuff, you're out of the band. It's that easy the way we relate. And I saw it a lot, you know, during the 90s when vineyard worship was the big thing. Going to the conferences and seeing lots of these guys who are my good friends and guys are my friends and seeing the competitiveness that was there and the fear of not being asked. You ask him, he got to play last time. I didn't get to play and begins this tension that begins to happen between rejected people that's there. It wasn't just with musicians, guys. It was with the pastors. It was with the speakers. Never with Glenn. He was always gracious. 
That is, that is true, by the way. So I remember creating another, we created another stage out in the foyer so we could have more musicians play, but that just started another big thing because, oh, you got to play on both stages. That's not right. And it just never stopped. Anybody remember those kind of things? Anybody around for that? Thank God. Well, you remember that. I was part of that. I was that, I was that rejected guy fighting and being jealous. But here comes the linchpin. As musicians, you suffer relationally and uh, speaking. How can we write and lead intimately? How can we in any way slow our fast song, begin to understand what intimate worship is when we don't have this sense that when I'm approaching the feet of Jesus, he's not going to call me out as a whore or he's not going to call me out as dirty or stinky. I don't like the scent you're pouring on my feet. With my life, I'm talking about now. Do we understand? Because I'm talking about musicians, but I'll come in all to say this here. This begins to happen with just all of us in the church. Because rejection becomes part of our lives in a sense. And we take our anthropological situation, what we've experienced with, with our lives, and we put it into our theological response that we know God loves us, but we've understood rejection from people and love is a rejection, win it or lose it kind of thing. And we begin to see God in this kind of way, even no matter where we're in the church and whatever gift we have and the way we hold things, we become a, a body of believers that begins to understand something about, hey, I'm accepted when I get asked to do this or stand to do that there. I'm loved because I do this or do that versus i'm loved as i am i'm accepted i'm and i and, and i love being where i'm at we begin to think god values us for what we can do and he discards us when we really aren't too good at what we do and at 54 uh with a pinched nerve playing guitar really isn't what's happening for me right now i don't have a lot of hair i don't dance too good my clothes are getting older and my bank account's getting too low to really refresh the replenish everything but uh you, you get what i'm saying you're caught in this situation that's there the reasons are just the same. Our personal experiences and love and acceptance have been forged quite the same on competition and giftedness that's there. And this is the things I got to be quick that happen. Is there something up there? Can you show me that one there? A rejection calls us to these kind of things. To be jealous of others. When I'm rejected, I, I'm jealous of others. I, I'm self-promoting. I'm defensive, unteachable. Arrogance not up there, but it certainly should be. Rebellious. Narcissistic manipulative i'm so glad none of you have these problems and that these are all problems that are just unique to me and tucker i am so glad that uh i'm kidding or whatever i hope this resonates and doesn't at one point causes us to be man pleasers guys by the way don't reject your wife it doesn't work like that uh so but the value of intimacy is what i want to say here one cannot have true intimacy with another if they're not accepted by that person or even if they don't feel accepted by the other and when it comes to an understanding of worship and an understanding of intimacy do we have to gather in a theology you look at that hat a theology of intimacy that comes into support a theology of acceptance to have intimacy the key comes this intimacy with god why is it in it because jesus says she's forgiven and i tell you that her sins are forgiven he says it's here and great is love because her sins forgiven now you say, I know this stuff. I know all this forgiveness stuff. And, all, and there's none of us here that doubts that Jesus forgives sins. What we do doubt, though, is this here, that he forgives our sins. Because we arrogantly say stuff like this. Oh, I know he forgives me, but I don't forgive myself. Like we're some Hebrew hot dog that has higher standards than God or something. I should have known better. All these other idiots, I understand why they sin. But the point is understanding of receiving, saying he does. And he has 
allowed me to crawl and move towards his feet. I don't believe he just forgave others. He forgave me. And maybe this is because our mothers and fathers used to use our past experience. Hey, you know, I would let you go out to the party, but you remember what I'm the last party. So they use our past against us. I don't know why mothers and fathers do that. I'm so glad I never did those things against my kids. Constantly use hellfire and damnation at a young age to get them where I need them to be because they know I can't kill them. They're at that age now. So you, you go, you do what you do to get hold of them. Uh, uh, the, the thing is, maybe it's, you know, it's, it's mother and dad, but possibly more than that, it's theological in the sense that we are still in this place of, of, of not understanding John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. When we sit back and say this here, he says, I baptize you with water, John said, repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm unworthy to carry, and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we look at this whole thing here and we begin to see more of the issue of John's baptism in our Western evangelical world where we sit back and say it's solely about being cleansed. I'm always trying to get clean all the time. I want to I want to get good enough. Every time you go to pray, you pray 15 minutes. Go, forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. And I'm doing that one morning. The Lord says, I don't need you to feel horrible about yourself to feel good about me because you can have it really good, Raymond, and I'm still a whole lot better. I don't need you to concentrate on your crappy little life. Forgive me if that's a bad word for some of you, because in Texas it is. But maybe if you center more on the glory, glory life, the life of glory that I have and I've given to you, that this worship might continue on. This issue of the baptism fire being one of anointing, that we're concentrating more on the sin being removed than we are about what's being left with us. And that's that residue of the all that is the anointing of who he is and his call and the Holy Spirit that's gifted us to what he has and that had nothing to do with who we were and what uh, he just gives it to us. Leaving us often when we begin to just get on the cleanliness, we're left with a lack of the Father's affirmation. Jesus is love and the Spirit's encouraging power and his word un, unacceptable because often here's the other thing we do. We're so locked into an individualistic idea of Jesus as, per, as my personal savior, which I love that we've lost the whole idea that Jesus is part of an eternal Godhead of three in one and it's a community, it's a family and we're called in at the family table and all of a sudden we realize this here that we are brought into a loving relationship of many that they sit around the Father, Son, and Spirit not pretending who's going to get this or that, but they have mutual admiration and respect. And no one, if anyone wins, everyone wins. If someone loses, everyone loses. And that we come into this place of understanding that we can come together and we can honor and worship and, and respect one another and be happy for one another that's there. And that we see this here, that these are the things that are there. His cup the one of the communion that we come to, we remember, is one of acceptance. That he has accepted us because of what he's done. And that when we drink that is a cup of acceptance of his forgiveness and his receiving us. And that the cup of rejection that we take is one that is of the enemy who's given it to us. And every time we drink the cup of rejection, whether it be from thinking he doesn't love us to thinking Glenn doesn't love us to thinking whatever, what someone else doesn't love us. That we have taken on the poison of a world that we have been pulled out of and brought into an intimate worship with him. And therefore, we can go into the intimacy that's there. Jesus would say this here. He, said, or he says, how can you believe if you accept praises from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? That this idea of rejection craves respect from others. 
that when I walk in a rejected self, craving the respect of others, that I have walked into a place of not looking at my master. Don't get me wrong. We need to affirm one another and love one another. But when I begin to feel the rejection that I brought from father, mother, father in heaven or another, that I have to understand that rejection is my enemy and I have to put it to death. Romans 8 would say this here and I close with this because my time. So if, if you live according to the sinful nature, I like that when I read that because when I read sinful nature, I'm thinking we're going off getting liquored up down on the lot, levee or something like that, you know. I don't even think you have. Do you have levees around here? Well, where do you drive your Chevy if you don't have a levee? It says, you will die, but if the spirit you put to death, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And he goes on and says, because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Led by the spirit were sons of God. This is the way that we put to death the deeds is through this acceptance of knowing we're children of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship and daughterhood. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. As we come in this, I say, let the acceptance of theology, acceptance that comes, moves me from just concentrating on this sense of I'm a sinful person but into the place of saying my sins are being expunged as I come into your presence and come to the table in your presence. You flush it out and you bring me in and you anoint me with all in the presence of my enemies. You've set a table for me. You love me. And you're going to teach me when I screw up because that's what love does. I don't have to go around on a sin hunt every time I feel bad about myself. But to glorify you and be an intimate worship. That's our heart today. Using us no good musicians to put a good word for all of us. The intimacy is a function of the acceptance of the one who counts the most. Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. I ask you what I do next because I'm new here. And I'd like to minister, but I don't know what our time goes. Okay, good. Would you stand with me now?